All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we will be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. It's the final section of the letter. In fact, when we come to this section, we really begin the one major exhortational section in the letter of 2 Thessalonians, the section where Paul calls them to specific actions. And the action he's going to call them to have to do with this group within the church who is not working. And he addressed this problem, uh, at least to some degree, in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians. And we talked about it there. We see it a little bit in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where he encourages them to work with their own hands and be responsible that way, and seems to have mentioned it again in chapter 5, verse 14. What seems to have happened is, somewhere from the time Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to the time it was delivered, and then Paul got word back from uh, the church in Thessalonica, Somewhere in there, the problems actually have intensified. My suspicion is what happened was the person who delivered the letter when he delivered 1 Thessalonians and then came back and reported back to Paul, he's like, um, you might need to address that problem more fully because it seems like it's worse than you thought. And your mild, gentle encouragement in that first letter, I don't think it's going to do the trick. It needs a little more strong, direct address. And that's what we get here in 2 Thessalonians. We get a much stronger address of this problem of people who have abandoned working. They've quit working, and they're mooching off the generosity of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. One question that raises then is, well, why did they quit working? Why have they abandoned work? And one kind of customary traditional answer has been, well, they had an over-expectation of Jesus' return, and so they just quit working, figuring Jesus was going to return any moment, any day. Why bother working? And while, you know, that's always possible, and throughout church history, that has certainly happened with various splinter groups off the church that have had an over realized expectation of Jesus' return, and they gave up all work, they gave up all responsibility financially. That's happened throughout church history. I'm just not so sure that's what's going on here in Thessalonica. For one, Paul never ties his instructions to their belief in or their confusions about the Lord's second coming. So he never, when he's trying to clarify their thinking and their behaving, he never says, Look, you've got it all wrong. That's not the way to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. He never in any way connects it to that. Not only that, when we look particularly here at 2 Thessalonians, it's very clear. You see a little bit in 1 Thessalonians. But when we look at their expectation of the Lord's return, it doesn't seem like they had an idea that he could return at any moment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, their problem is they seem to think the day of the Lord has already happened in some way. And so I'm not so sure that their abandoning work has any direct connection to their belief in or their confusion about the second coming of Jesus. So then why might they have abandoned working? I think the better explanation has to do with um, where they have come from sociologically, how the church has benefited them, and sort of the nature of the lower class citizens in a 
Hellenistic cities such as Thessalonica. Here's what I mean by that is the the poor, particularly the working poor, there just weren't a whole lot of jobs available. Even in a major port city like Thessalonica, it wasn't easy to work. Uh, it wasn't easy to get work. And so unemployment tended to be a real problem for people. And if you have now become a believer from that background into a church where the values of the church is to care for the needy, right? That's one of the explicit values of God's people from the beginning of the, uh, the church in Acts chapter 2 on. And so now these people are taking care of you. All of a sudden, there's no motivation to work, even though you could. And so now you're mooching off their generosity um, with no effort to actually get work. And that causes all sorts of problems. It causes resentment in the people who are being generous and who are working hard. It causes witness issues with the greater Greco-Roman society who's looking at the church as, look, you're just you're just a home for loafers and freeloaders, right? And so that's just not the way it's supposed to be. And so I think the reason uh, some of these people aren't working is because they are from the working class poor, and there it's hard to get jobs, and it's easier just to loaf and mooch off the generosity of the church. And that seems to be what's going on in the church at Thessalonica. And that's the problem that Paul addresses here in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. Now, whatever the backstory is to that, if it's what I suppose or maybe something different, we, we know what the issue is. The issue is there are people who are loafing and mooching off the generosity of the Christians who are working hard. Paul has some very direct, straightforward language, both to the loafers and to the church at large and how to respond to that. Here's what he says. He says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice just the opening with which he starts this section and the, the tone of seriousness. We command you. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, what he's going to go on to say here is going to be directly addressed to the church at large, not just to the idle, not just to the loafers, but these words, these words that are communicated with this tone of seriousness are addressed to the church at large. And so we command you as apostles, as representatives of Jesus, right? He's giving a very strong order in the name of Jesus. So we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, that is under his authority and as his representative, that, here's his command, that you keep away from every brother or sister who leads a disorderly life and not one in accordance with the tradition you received from us. So his instruction to the church at large here is that if there are brothers and sisters in the church who are leading a one, disorderly life that is not in keeping with the tradition they received from Paul. So if they're leading a disorderly uh, disorderly life, he says, keep away from them. The idea of keep away or keep aloof is to withdraw from. Put a little bit of social distance between yourself and them. Uh, put a little bit of like sociological pressure in a communal culture where uh, there is a stronger sense of community life than there is in Western cultures like the one I'm in, this sort of uh, social pressure from the community is a way of getting people's attention 
and calling them to change their behavior. That's what he's concerned about. So it's not just to shame them. It's not to humiliate them. It's to create some social pressure to move them to repentance, to move them to change their behavior. So keep away, withdraw from, which means don't condone or join in with them. Don't show your support for that. Actually kind of pull back from Pull back from supporting them. Pull back from being generous and donating to them. Pull back even a little bit socially from them to create this pressure. And notice that the problem is that they're leading a disorderly life. The idea of this, and it becomes very clear as this paragraph unfolds, is willful and rebellious irresponsibility. That's the way one scholar words it in his commentary. Willful and rebellious irresponsibility. It's not that they can't work. It's that they just choose not to. They won't to. They're choosing to be lazy. They're choosing to be irresponsible. They're choosing to be disorderly and irresponsible. And so it's willful, uh, rebellious irresponsibility. Notice he also describes it as not in accordance with the tradition you receive from us, meaning the pattern the teaching, the instruction that you saw in us, that you heard from us. This is not what we passed on to you. That's the idea. And in fact, in verse 7, Paul's going to go on and recall back to their mind the pattern they saw in them. He highlighted this in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he once again talked about how hard he worked to provide for his own keep. He's just now jogging their memory and calling it back to mind. So what's the tradition they received? Verse 7, 4. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. And so the tradition is their very own pattern, their very own um, example that they need to imitate. They need to imitate Paul's example, which as an aside from the main point he's talking about here, this is really, really important. We see this over and over and over again in Paul's writings, and that is that Paul and his team viewed the way they conducted themselves among their new churches as a concrete pattern of discipleship to Jesus. Their example was part of their tradition about how to follow Jesus and live as a disciple. And it's true in our world, too, that people need concrete examples of what discipleship looks like. So they need people who are actively, intentionally following Jesus to imitate, to look at their life and pattern their discipleship after that. And Paul's uh, calling his example and his team's example to mind in this specific issue of a disorderly life here. So he says, you ought to follow our example because, here, here's what he says, we did not act in an undisciplined way among you. So we weren't undisciplined, right? We weren't irresponsible. We weren't lazy loafers who mooched off your generosity. We didn't do that. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you'll hear how he talks about working day and night, right? And how he provided for his own room and board. We see this in other places in Paul's letters as well. Paul routinely and regularly, when he would move to a new town to start a church, he routinely and regularly would not take an offering from that town. He would work. In his leather-making business, he would work with his own hands to provide his own keep. He would receive funds from churches in other cities that were more well-established rather than this city. And he had a whole policy about that and a whole way he approached that. That's what he's talking about here. We actually were not undisciplined. We were hardworking. We were responsible. We paid for our own room and board. Um, verse 8, he goes on and says, Nor did we eat anyone's 
bread without paying for it, right? Like we paid for our own food. We didn't just mooch off of you. We actually paid for, for it. With, but with labor and hardship. Notice those two words. This wasn't something that was easy with labor, with toil, with difficulty and hardship. Um, we kept working night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Notice that, that Paul says, we, we, we worked extremely hard, and one of the reasons is so we wouldn't be a burden to you. In fact, he says, it's not because we didn't have a right to do this, verse 9. Like, we had the right, the authority, literally, that word right. We, we could have demanded you to take care of us. Why? Because we were apostles, and we started the church. And we know from Paul's other letters how Paul thought about this. Like, the, the preacher is worthy of his wages, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We, we know from the Corinthian correspondence that he believed as an apostle, he had the right, if he sowed, he says, spiritual things among you, he had the right to reap material things from you. So he had the right, the authority, to expect them to take care of them. He just chose not to use that right. So it's not because we didn't have the right to do this, but he says in order to offer ourselves as a role model for you so that you would follow our example. So part of the reason for Paul choosing this approach to things, it wasn't the only reason we can read in other letters, there was more behind this, but part of the reason for choosing to move to a new city, work with his own hands, pay for his own room and board, part of the reason was to provide a concrete pattern of hard, disciplined work that should be part of our discipleship. Disciples work hard to be responsible. They're not undisciplined and disorderly. In fact, Paul says in verse 10, even when we were with you, even when we were there face to face, we used to give you this order, this order, that word order is the same word as command in verse 6, the same command. This same instruction. So when we were there, we told you this. We taught you this. So it wasn't just his example. It was also his explicit teaching tied with his example so that so they could understand the meaning and significance of example. What was the command he used to give them? It was this. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. Uh, if anyone's unwilling to work, don't let him eat. That's the idea. That was the command he gave them. Now, it's really important we hear that properly. It's not if anyone can't work. It's if anyone is not willing to work. That word willing literally is to want to will. They refuse to. They're perfectly capable of doing it. They just refuse to do it. Then Paul says, then there's no obligation to feed them. Like, they're capable of working. So if anyone's capable of working but refuses to do it, then don't let them eat. Don't feel, in other words, to the whole church, he's writing this to the whole church here, then there's no obligation on the church to let him mooch off of you. The church should be one of the most generous uh, communities, generous organizations on earth. But at the same time, the church should also be prudent and responsible and not just continue to give to people who are just taking advantage of their generosity, but refuse to actually work hard and move forward in life. That's one of the things we learn from this section of 2 Thessalonians. Not only that, another thing we learn from this section of Thessalonians is that working hard and being responsible is part of our discipleship too, and the way we please and honor God. And so, 
if we are capable of working, we should do that and we should follow Paul's example and we should work hard. We should work hard to provide for our own keep, provide for our own room and board. Now, Paul goes on then in verse 11, and he shifts his attention now to specifically those who aren't working, to those who are being undisciplined, unruly in the way they go about their life. So it says in verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. They're being unruly. They're living disorderly. That's the idea. And so they're living an unruly, disorderly, idle life. They are not working. They're capable of doing it. They should be doing it. They're just not doing it. So we hear that some are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. There's a play on words there in the Greek that's really hard to capture in English. The NIV attempts to cap capture that play on words. They do better than the New American Standard does here. The NIV translates this last half of verse 11 as, they aren't busy, they're busy bodies. And that at least helps you capture the sense of the play on words in Greek. That's what he, he's getting at. These people, literally, they, they don't work. Instead, they work around. And the idea of work around is to be a busybody. They work their way around from house to house, talking to people, asking people for handouts, stirring up trouble, gossiping. They got all this time on their hands. So they're just working their way from person to person and house to house and group to group, just stirring up trouble and causing problems for people and just being a busybody, being nosy, mooching off everybody. They're not busy. They're busybodies. They're not working. They're working their way around through the community of faith. Um, and Paul's like, that's just not our way. That's not how we approach this. So he says in verse 12, so now we command and exhort such persons. Again, notice the strength and how serious the language is. We command and we urge, we exhort such persons in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as followers of Jesus, as those who have said they believe in Jesus, they trust his wisdom, and they want to arrange their life under his authority. So we command and exhort those in the Lord Jesus. So Paul acts as his representative with his authority. He's appealing to these people who say they believe in Jesus' authority. We command and exhort such persons in the Lord Jesus to work peacefully or to work literally quietly instead of being busybodies, meddling in everyone's affairs, right? Like just go about your life quietly. Quit stirring up trouble. Quit butting your nose into places it doesn't belong. That's the idea. So to work peacefully and to eat their own bread. Don't mooch off others, right? The idea of eat their own bread is to provide their own for their own resources, to pay their own bills, to buy their own food, to take care of themselves, right? They're capable of doing it. So you work quietly. Work in quietness is the idea. And quietness stands opposed to busybody. Don't work your way around stirring up trouble. Work in quietness and eat your own bread. Pay for your own food. Take care. Pay your own rent. Pay your own bills. That's the idea. But as for you, brothers and sisters, now back to the church at large. So we zoomed in on the those who were the problem in verses 11 and 12. He spoke very straightforward to them. Now in verse 13, he zooms back out to the church at large and says, But as for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary of doing good. And so his concern is, for the church at whole, you've been being taken advantage of by people who you have no responsibility and no obligation to care for. And that can make people very weary. It's like, no, 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 I'm done. I'm done with taking care of needy people. And Paul's like, don't do that. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, you don't have to take care of people who can work but won't. But there are people who have legitimate needs. And they have 
the inability to work. Make sure you still take care of them. Don't grow weary of doing good, of taking care of the legitimate needs of people there in the church. And to emphasize how important this is and how serious Paul is about this, in verses 14 and 15, Paul it, it basically says to the church, I'm so serious that I want you to not associate with people who don't obey these instructions. Listen to what he says, verse 14. He says, now, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, primarily what he's just said, it could apply to other things, but really the, the main instruction by way of behavior is what he's just said with regard to working and eating and all that. So if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, pay attention to him, so as not to associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Now, this kind of culture is what's known as an honor and shame culture. And so behavior wasn't thought of so much as in just ab abstract right and wrong. It was thought of behavior that was honorable and behavior that brought shame. The point of do not associating with them is we want him to know that the behavior he is choosing in by being disorderly and irresponsible is shameful behavior. It's behavior that brings dishonor and disgrace on us as God's people and uh, the followers of Jesus in town. This is disgraceful behavior. He needs to understand that. She needs to understand that so that they will change their behavior and come back into line with the way of Jesus that I have just taught you. And so don't associate with them. Again, that's this withdraw, keep aloof. Uh, let there be a little bit of social distance, not to humiliate um, and not to you know just treat them like a terrible person, but to create social community pressure so as to motivate a change of behavior. In fact, he says in verse 15, and yet don't regard that person as an enemy. So I want you to not associate with him, but I don't want you to treat him like an enemy. I want you to admonish that person as a brother or sister. So they're still a brother or sister. But this is the way in a communal culture you would get the attention of a brother or sister who needed to, to change the way they were going about their life. They needed to feel community pressure, positive social peer pressure, if you will, to change their behavior. And so this is motivated by love. This is motivated by a desire to see them uh, actually follow Jesus and become mature in Christ. It's, it's motivated by a heart that has their best interest uh, at stake and at heart, and uh, a heart that's not at war with them like with an enemy, but at peace with them as a brother or sister looking to help them grow and mature and change. That's the goal. And so Paul is encouraging the church to deal with this so seriously that they, they get this brother or sister to come back into line with the pattern of Jesus. With that, the body of 2 Thessalonians is complete, and all that remains is for Paul's final well-wish and his sign-off of the letter. So that's what we get in verses 16 through 18. He says, Now, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. So this is his final prayer and well-wish for them. May the Lord of peace, the God himself who is full of peace and who gives peace, May he also give you peace in every circumstance. So in the midst of your difficulties, your hardships, 
the opposition that you're experiencing, may you experience the very shalom, the very peace of God, the wholeness and the blessedness that comes from being in a right relationship with God. That's the idea of peace. Peace doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Peace means the presence of wholeness. And so there in Thessalonica and wherever you yourself are living, may you experience the peace of Christ in every circumstance. Positive circumstances, negative circumstances, we can experience the very peace of God because we're now in a right relationship with God and his peace can be our sense of wholeness and blessedness, even in difficult circumstances. And then Paul signs off with, the Lord be with you all. May the Lord himself be with you all. I, Paul, he says, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Why does Paul have to say that? Well, remember 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, where he's afraid they got some false letter that confused him about the day of the Lord. So Paul has picked up his pen and he's offered the signature. And part of the reason that was necessary was because the custom was, in Paul's culture, he didn't probably write the body of the letter. He dictated it. He spoke it and somebody wrote it down for him. And so we we actually have copies of Greco-Roman letters from this time period where the, the last little bit of the letter is written in a different handwriting because the actual one who's sending the letter picks up the pen and writes the last sentence or two himself. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. So he's dictated the letter. Now he's picked up the greeting in, and says, that this is the, what my handwriting looks like. So if you get a letter that claims to be from me and it doesn't have this uh, signature, this handwriting on it, not from me. All right. And so this is going to be the distinguishing mark, he says, in every letter. This is the way I write. And then he signs off with, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And he ends the letter with this wish of them experiencing and growing in the grace of Jesus Christ. And with that, 2 Thessalonians comes to an end. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the commentary here on 2 Thessalonians, on the listener's commentary. As many of you know, this commentary series that I'm putting together on the New Testament is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project, which means in order for this project to continue to be able to expand and me to continue to put out new commentaries, I am dependent on the generosity of God's people. And so thank you to those of you who support this work, support this ministry of Bible teaching in this way. At the time of this recording, the listener's commentary is about 30 to 35% funded. And so we're pray for, prayerfully seeking more generous donors to help us continue to advance this project and advance this work. So if you've been impacted in some way by the listener's commentary, I just want to encourage you to prayerfully consider, do you want to join the team? Are you able in any way to support this work? If you are, thank you. Thank you so much. If not, no worries. We trust the Lord to provide for us however he can and through those that he can. And so we're just grateful that you are a part of the listener's commentary and it is helping you grow in your knowledge of scripture and your ability to follow Jesus. So thanks for being a part of the listener's commentary.